0: Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. In the past, my guest has referred to herself as a fixer-upper. However, I consider her a survivor, empath, and optimist. A single mother and survivor of domestic abuse, homelessness, anxiety, depression, and despair. She is also a dreamer. Regardless of how isolated and desperate she was, she never gave up hope of one day being able to provide an oasis of a child care inclusive arts retreat space for single mothers and other twice-marginalized single parents. She too had struggled to put food on the table and pay rent while working multiple jobs and frantically looking over both shoulders out of concern for the safety of herself and her young child, not yet comfortable trusting strangers. She aspires to one day be the conduit that opened the door for other women who have been victimized. Betsy Cornwell is a New York Times bestselling author living in Ireland. Her forthcoming memoir and her first book for adults, titled The Old Knitting Factory, set in County Galway, Western Ireland, is the story of a historic 1906 knitting factory that Betsy has transformed into a safe haven for single artistic moms and their children, including child care funded by donors. Betsy has published many young adult books, including Reader, I Murdered Him, The Circus Rose, Mechanica, The Forest Queen, Venturis, and Tides. I'm so excited to welcome Betsy Cornwell to Should Have Listened to My Mother.
1: Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's such a pleasure, and we've been back and forth for a while, so I'm so happy that this was able to happen Back in January of 2023, I came across your Modern Love column in the Sunday New York Times, and a lot has been going on in your life. So how about if we begin hearing a little bit about how the Modern Love story was submitted to the Times and that experience?
1: You know, I'm a writer. I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, I remember, you know, being six years old and looking at books and wanting wanting to write a book. And the Modern Love um, column has been a sort of Dream far off dream of mine, you know. Since since the column started, and so it really was, you know, one of the most surreal moments of my writing career when I got the email back from the editor of Modern Love saying he was interested in my essay. I, I screamed, and I had just woken up, and my kid was like, "Mommy, what's wrong?" And I was like, "Oh, that's okay."
0: I just heard Modern Love. And, um, that's a good scream. Yeah. <laughs>
1: he was like I was like, "It's hard to explain. Don't worry about it." You know. Like, oh, that um,
0: is so much fun! Um, I get the chills just hearing yeah, you tell that story.
1: Yeah. It was such a lovely, you know. He was such a such a kind person and such a nice editor to work with. And the whole, you know, the the column came out just a couple of weeks after uh, I got that email. So it all was very surreal, and I'm still hearing from people like. Um, it was, it was read out in Italian on an Italian radio show a few weeks ago. And I so I got all these new Instagram followers from Italy and I like people writing to me from Italy and it was, it was totally surreal, you know? So, um, and you know, of course I've read the column for a long time and really love it. So it's just a, a huge honor to be able to do that. And then, um, you know, modern love is sort of famous for launching memoirs and it was uh, just a month or two after Uh, The column came out that I uh, sold my memoir proposal. So, we'll say that the memoir hasn't come out yet. It just was announced, but I I still need to actually finish writing it and it'll be out in about two years.
0: Oh, it's so exciting. Congratulations again. So, here we are on this podcast called Should Have Listened to My Mother. And we are talking about moms. I know Mm -hmm. that you are not in touch with your biological mom.
1: Right. Yeah, that's right. I haven't spoken to her in 10 years now. Yeah.
0: Do you have a maternal figure in your life or many now that you're doing all of this work to help moms? Is there Uh, one woman that sticks out in your...
1: um, I I think many is the right answer to that. And I think, you know, I'm lucky that it's always been many. Like I think, uh, like I grew up in a a quite abusive uh, household and I was really lucky to encounter um, other sort of caring figures in my life, I think especially teachers. I was always um, sort of a nerdy kid and had a hard time sort of socially in elementary school, but really enjoyed the school part of school and had some really wonderful teachers. I remember my third grade teacher introduced me to uh, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel, which really put me on the path to writing speculative young adult novels. And I later ended up going to Smith College, which is a historically women's college that Madeline Lengel also went to. And so the sort of, and actually I would include Madeline L'Engle, the writer as a sort of childhood maternal picture of time. And so I think Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons that I was drawn to writing for young people as sort of quite a lonely child in a difficult home situation. Books were, you know, a, a, a literal lifeline for me. And so I've always wanted to write to young people to sort of create that same sense of connection and ability to imagine sort of better uh, ways of being in the world and better kinds of relationships and that kind of thing, because books were really the first thing that that did that for me.
0: It was your safe place, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then certainly I, I was very lucky, I think, luckier than I knew at the time to go to Smith. Um, and mostly because, uh, I mean, I had a great time when I was there. It's a fabulous college, but also the alum community that have really rallied around me uh since since I started doing the the knitting factory project and even before then you know when I became a single parent um uh it was Uh, Smith alums who I knew online were the people who sort of reached out and offered me support, helped me find jobs, helped me pay my rent one month. You know, it really is a strong community of uh, mostly women. And uh, they certainly have sort of collectively mothered me and my kid through through this whole project.
0: And through the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. For those who haven't read the modern love story, would you like to briefly summarize for them your experience and and sure. how it got you to where you are today?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for the modern love piece, I was sort of took a specific angle with it where I was talking about what I learned from my ex-husband, who's a horse trainer, about sort of the behaviors of herd animals. Um, and so that was the sort of specific little sliver that I was talking about there, but uh, broadly. So basically I left an abusive marriage when my uh, baby was less than a year old and became homeless when we our, our family home became unsafe. Um, and then, you know, I sort of struggled to find even a place that I could afford to rent for a long time. The housing crisis in Ireland is shocking as as it is in many places, you know. And so even with multiple jobs, it was really hard for me to find a place where we could afford to live. And I was always, you know, um, dealing with sort of unkind landlords and uh, feeling feeling threatened with housing instability the way so, so many single-parent families and even you know, many families are today. And I started fantasizing about homeownership in a way that I never had before in my life, sort of as a, as a millennial, you know, I sort of had assumed that that was out of my grasp anyway. Um, and then especially as a, a single parent, as a self-employed person, um, as an immigrant to Ireland, I just was sure that that no bank would ever look at me. And that turned out to be true.
0: So in the meantime, you had been writing, you were teaching at the National University of Ireland, and you were doing mentorship programs.
1: That's right. Yeah. So I've, you know, I was lucky that I was making money from writing by then, you know, my first book came out. Uh, five years before this all happened and was part of how I was able to move to Ireland in the first place. But, you know, <laughs> like novel writing is not as sort of glamorous and lucrative as some people seem to think that it is. <laughs> and uh, so even when I was married, it wasn't enough to live on solely, you know, so I also teach writing at uh, the University of Galway. Um, I was doing online tutoring and mentoring and editing and teaching and uh, I working various whatever sort of odd jobs related to those things that I could get um, and uh so yeah I I was I've been teaching at the University of Galway since 20 uh since 2016 um and but that was a part-time job as well so uh and again neither none of those things sort of pay
0: pay well you know <laughs> how long were you together with your your ex-husband before you knew that this was time to get out? We
1: were together for a little more than five years and married for four years. So uh, I met him when I first, after I finished my master's program in creative writing at the University of Notre Dame in the States, I came over to Ireland to do some research in Irish folklore for my first book. But I was very burnt out. I had been in school since I was three years old and just finished my master's program. And it was sort of the first time in my life that I wasn't uh, sort of hyper overachieving every day, you know, and um, so I was doing work exchange at a hostel on the Aran Islands, uh, very close to where I live now, actually, on the, in the west of Ireland, and um, I met this handsome Irish horse trainer who had come out for a holiday, and uh, we had this very intense romance and ended up eloping uh, exactly a year to the day after we met, <laughs> and we were married for um, about four years, a little more than four years, uh, when when we split up.
0: Can I ask, how long did you overstay if it were that simple, that black and white?
1: Oh, I don't think it's that simple at all. Um, I, I, I couldn't give an answer to that at all, I think. Yeah.
0: Um, because we know that so many women are, are in a similar situation as they're sure. listening to this story, yeah, right? Yeah, I think that and, would be
1: a sort of a, a judgmental thing to say about, about my relationship or about any relationship. You know, like I, I've heard that it takes an average of six attempts to leave an abusive relationship. And I think there's so much judgment put on women uh, or anyone for staying in an abusive relationship, but especially women. I think people who've never been in that situation like to think that they would get out quickly or that they're too smart to get into that situation in the first place. I I certainly thought that you know before it happened to me. And I think anyone who gets out at any time uh, is to be celebrated. You know, I actually, um, I've gotten a lot of support and certainly sort of mothering from my local domestic violence center and from the, the survivors group there. And I remember uh, the first time I went to a sort of um, like group healing day uh, for domestic violence survivors, uh, where, you know, they sort of, the domestic violence center sponsored a day where they do yoga and meditation and stuff like that. And um, I met a woman in her 70s who had been married for 50 years and had just left her husband. And uh, she's remarkable, you know, and I don't think, I mean, did she stay too long or did she get out when she was able to, you know?
0: Please, that was not a judgmental question. No, 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 no.
1: Yeah, I just, uh, it's something that's important to me, you know, so yeah.
0: (laughs) I have no idea, but I can imagine how difficult it is. And you said she got out, this woman got out, and there's, no, again, no judgment either way. It's just one can only hope for the best.
1: I think for me, I'm often told, I'm often sort of praised for getting out quickly because I left when my my child was very young. Um, But I think there were a couple of things that went into that. First of all, like I had my own work. So even though we didn't have a home to go to at first, you know, I felt like I had some hope of being able to create a life for myself and my child financially um, which a lot of women don't don't feel that way um, and I also like I actually think that having grown up in an abusive home helped me to leave more quickly because one of the things that I always felt a lot of anger towards my mother for was uh, not leaving my father and so I knew that I didn't want to, my child to grow up in, in an abusive home with a scary dad the way I had and uh, so so I actually left for his sake, you know, which I think like looking back, I wish I could have said I deserve better than this, you know, but I think for a lot of mothers, that's not the case. You're, you're sort of so thoroughly taught as a, as a woman, as a mother that you should sacrifice uh, your own treatment for the sake of your children growing up with a father. Um, but I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced now that the, the correct parenting choice is to show your children that um, uh That people don't get to mistreat you, you know, because I think the other option is uh, teaching your child that whatever your relationship is like, that's something normal and something to be accepted. So whatever the gender of your child is, you know, are you teaching them that that's the way uh, husbands treat their wives? Are you teaching them that that's the way they should expect to be treated by their husbands? And and neither of those are things that I wanted to teach my child, you know.
0: Well, I'm so impressed and. I admire everything that you're doing, because (laughs) in the thick of all of this, you still were had that dream to help other women. Yeah. And it's such a magical story. So I definitely want to concentrate on the the positive side of all of this, because whether it's you can dream of having that life that we all deserve, whether Mm -hmm. you get out for your children or yourself, Mm -hmm. it is possible. And there are people to help, correct? Yeah, There are always people to help.
1: And I think that that was something that I'm really still working on, I think, with this project is sort of internalizing the idea that so many people really do want to help just for the sake of helping someone, you know. I think like when you grow up in a sort of dysfunctional household, you you sort of learn, or at least in my case, you learn that if people do something kind or generous for you, they expect payback at some point, you know? And um that's that's certainly how emotional abuse worked in my marriage as well. And so it's still really, <laughs> I still sort of have to work on uh, understanding that people just want to be kind for the sake of it, and even though you know that's that's how I have felt about this project, kind of instinctively, but um, it's it's hard to it's a sort of long process of of um, not being suspicious of everyone all the time, you
0: know. Well, and then the women you're trying to help are they suspicious of you offering this amazing? You offer residencies, all paid for too.
1: Yeah, some people are. I mean, I did get uh, someone wrote to the Modern Love editor after the column came out sort of saying that they thought I was running a scam, basically. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. um, And yeah, so that really that really got to me because what she said was um, that she thought I was lying about uh, having been abused, you know, and this is someone I never met who'd never wouldn't know me from Adam, you know. And um but she said she thought I was, you know, a good writer who was able to sort of mimic the experience of a survivor but hadn't actually been through it. And that really got to me because I think anyone, you know, that's your kind of biggest fear when you come forward about abuse is uh, not being believed.
0: Yes. So many layers.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, but you know, I mean, I think I I, again i can under i think she's a survivor as well and again like that i can understand that sort of emotional reaction you know that, yeah, um,
0: that that's interesting cuz i was thinking the same thing so she it was a defense mechanism
1: Totally. And, um, you know, I, I think luckily in my case, and actually even to get the piece published in Modern Love, I had to, I had to, I was fact-checked, you know, I had to provide copies of uh, my restraining order and court records and things like that. And so um, it didn't come to anything. But the the interest in the project uh, and especially, you know, so I, I opened applications for the second um, rest residency, as I was calling them. So instead of arts residencies for these first ones, I wanted to just offer them uh, to any single mother who might need some rest, you know. And uh there's been so much more interest than I <laughs> because like right. I mean I think it, it strikes a chord for people because I mean I'm exhausted all the time, you know, I oh, think no. I feel like anything that I do in a day that isn't just like staring into the distance is an accomplishment is you know? <laughs> a good day. <laughs> and, um, and oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. And so but, but the good thing about that, you know I'm delighted that it's gotten so much interest and that it struck a chord with people because uh, there have been people who have responded to the call for applications by saying that they're interested in running similar programs in their BNBs or hotels or Airbnb properties or whatever, and that's the best possible result I think because you know that can sort of, I mean, I would love for that to sort of spread exponentially and for people to start offering spaces for free, you know, to to people in their community who might need it. But I think centering the project around single mothers. I think also strikes a chord with people uh, both positively and negatively, because a lot of my biggest supporters are the adult children of single mothers, people who are raised by single mothers and are are deeply aware of um, how, how uncared for their mothers were when they were growing up. And that's been one of the most moving experiences for me. You know, I think like most mothers, I worry a lot about my parenting and, um, like what my what my especially and as someone who who isn't in contact with my parents you know um what will my child's evaluation of my parenting be when he's grown up and so to um hear from adult children of single mothers uh who really value and appreciate their mothers uh has been incredibly healing for me you know and um but then you also hear from people who sort of think single mothers are lazy or uh you know improper or disloyal. you know you're always gonna get
0: naysayers you're always gonna have that unfortunate and here you're you're leading with your heart and it's probably crushing that people just don't get it
1: yeah there's a lot of stigma about single motherhood and i think you know it's a bit surprising that even today there's so much uh judgment of single single mothers um which is why i wanted to sort of i ex- i specifically use the use the phrase single mother rather than single parent because i think it does have some extra stigma attached to it and uh so i want to sort of interrupt that a little bit. And uh, because, you know, being a single mother is something I'm really
0: proud of. Absolutely, as you should be. So these satellite places are perhaps starting to spring up. And and the more more children of single moms speak their voice and make that heard, it will put a realistic attitude or tone to the conversation.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Right, the
0: truth that's there. I'd like to spend the next couple of minutes uh, with you sharing some of the actual details about the Knitting Factory, the actual building. Your website's beautiful, and it can be found at knittingfactory.com. Because I know you were hunting through real estate Listings, so set set the tone for us and and describe it a little bit because I know you've done a lot of work.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, you know, so as I said, I have to kind of go back to when I first became a single parent and uh, did not have a home for for a little while, and that's when I sort of started fantasizing about about home ownership. And I was I would stroll I would scroll through uh, real estate listings, you know, on my phone at night uh, when I couldn't sleep, and I actually saw the Knitting Factory for sale really early on in that process, but kind of overlooked it um, because. Because I I thought that I had to, you know, I'm a writer and I thought I had to find, if this was going to work, I was going to write a book about a house in order to buy the house. I thought that was the only possible way that I could make this happen. And it didn't <laughs> seem sort of strange. And romantic enough to write about, um, and so when I when I was well, was, I was looking at just sort of all the properties listed for sale in the west of Ireland, and um, I actually went to a, a knitting and stitching show in Dublin with my much older friend Joan. You know, I was sort of moaning about uh, how I wished I could buy a house, but I'll never be able to. Blah blah blah, and she said, you know, you're a writer; you should write a book um about you should find a weird old house and write a book about it and then you can sell the book to buy the house like in under the tuscan sun (laughs) and that was the the text that she kept referencing and i was like i sort of i sort of glommed on to this idea even though it's so far-fetched and um it was, it was kind of my version of a rebound fling, you know, like I had been, uh, not that long out of my marriage. And instead of, uh, another romance, I fell in love with this idea of buying an old house and writing a book about it. Um, and that same day that we were at the knitting show, I saw a castle for sale in Galway. Um, and I was like, this is it. I the
0: was, wheels turning. <laughs> started turning. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I was like, I could write about a castle. People, you know, Americans would love it. Uh, it'll be great. And I thought that I was sort of getting signs from the universe that this was gonna Happen, you know, and um, I became obsessed with this castle. And I wrote to the real estate agent. I toured it. I like started talking about how it's going to be fundraising and stuff. Um, and I was very eager. And then the owner decided not to sell the castle at all. And I was, uh, I think he probably realized that he had more of a market from eccentric Americans than, <laughs> than he, had thought he did. And, um, so I was devastated. So I found another sort of overpriced rental. I was struggling along and I couldn't quite let go of this dream and um it was it was a dream of sort of home ownership and stability for myself and my kid but it also at the same time had become this dream of a space that i could offer to other single mothers partly because of that survivors group at the local domestic violence center that i mentioned who had really done so much for me to help me uh, help revive my sort of faith in myself my self-esteem my pride in uh single motherhood and um who you know these women vastly deserve support and uh that I, I also, you know, as a working writer, I kept seeing, and I was constantly looking for work and I kept seeing, um, uh, funded arts residencies, but that, that had no consideration whatsoever for childcare. And so I, I didn't feel like I could do them. And, uh, so, so I really started dreaming of a space that would center and cater to, uh, single parents, um, that would provide the kinds of opportunities and the kinds of support that I was that I just wasn't finding, you know? And, um, so that's, that's where that dream came from. And I thought if I could create this space, That I can offer to other people but that can also be a home for myself and my kid then I can sort of I can make those things the same and you know that I I also you know I like the fact that this is our home and we're sharing it with other single parents like it isn't a property that I don't live in um even though that would be nice in its own ways but like it really has uh, provided a sense of community with other single parents that I really appreciate. My kid gets to play with um, other kids, and that's wonderful. And uh, so, so, so it has sort of. There's the virtual community uh, of supporters who who helped crowdfund the project, and then there's the sort of in person community of getting to to interact with the people who come to stay here. Um, and I really appreciate that. But so basically, after the castle uh, fell through. it was like a few months later and I was looking, I couldn't sleep one night. And so I was sort of torturing myself looking at real estate listings again. And I came across the knitting factory again, which I hadn't seen in years, but was still on the market. And I suddenly thought, you know, like it's maybe this, maybe this is a place that would work. Um, it's a, a building that has a lot of history. It was built in 1906, uh, ostensibly to offer, um, knitting jobs to local women, although it has a really complicated history in terms of, uh, sort of British colonialism in Ireland, which uh, is really interesting. Uh, and then it was made into the first ever Irish language cinema in the 1970s. Uh, and there were people here every week watching Irish language films, which I think is great. Um, and, uh, it was a jewelry making studio in the nineties. And so it had a lot of sort of creative history. And, um, so I thought maybe I could write a book about this place. And I wrote, it was being sold by, uh, someone in America. So I Zoomed with him in March 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, he he said he was willing to rent it to me for a year to see if I could uh, sell a book about it. And so we moved in, and I started fundraising for the project in addition to writing a book proposal.
0: What did it look like in the photograph of the listing versus the work that you've had to do now to get it ready?
1: Oh, okay. Um, well, it's sort of a long one-story cottage. It's right on a lake, which is amazing. There's, you know, the lakefront is part of the property and it's uh, right outside a little, little village called Carrow in the West of Ireland. Um, And it certainly looked kind of dilapidated uh, and hadn't been lived in in several years, but uh, fortunately, nothing really had to be done to make it livable. It was just very out of use. So there was a lot of sort of hauling old, musty mattresses out and, you know, dealing with cobwebs and, and redecorating and that kind of thing. Uh, but there's functional kitchen and bathroom and all of that stuff. So thank goodness. I Wow, I
0: that's great. I yeah, thought it had so, been like dilapidated and abandoned. And-
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is. It's not fancy, you know, and actually um my I'm very excited now to get to uh, renovate the bathroom having sold this memoir. that was my my dream is I just want to make enough money from the memoir to renovate the bathroom you know <laughs> <laughs> and, um, because uh, what, what ended up happening was uh you know my whole plan was to sell a book to buy the house, but sure. what ended up happening was i I crowdfunded the purchase of the house, and that is still. Uh, shocking to me to think about. So it was. It was through telling my story about my own experience of single parenthood and also the story of what I wanted to do with the space that kind of rallied people around it. And so I didn't. I, I didn't end up selling the book until after I bought the house. But it was. It was through telling a story about it that I was able to um, to get people to care about the project. And I think it also helped me give myself permission to be vulnerable about what I was going through, you know, that if it was in service of this project, that would help other people. Then I could talk about how hard, how hard single parenthood can be in a way that I sort of, if it was like, just, I, I, maybe it's, it's like how I couldn't leave my marriage just for me, even though I wish in retrospect that I could have, like I couldn't tell my story of single parenthood if it was just to buy a house for myself, but if it was also, to help other people, then suddenly I felt able to do it.
0: Isn't that amazing that you've even run that through your head already?
1: Yeah, right. It it gave me permission to be vulnerable, I think. And um, I hope, yeah, maybe that's a good lesson that I should move forward with, actually, I think. Um, Just eliminate
0: it from your vocabulary. It's right here and now going forward. That that was the old to you.
1: That's right. And I'm really I but I'm really proud of um of, of what we've done here and I'm I'm so grateful for I think I've I've had a radical sort of re education in the kindness of human beings because of this project. And, you know, I think it was because I had this specific idea that I felt able to be open to people. Um, and, but even if I hadn't, I would hope, you know, like I would hope that that's, that's not something that everybody needs. Like you shouldn't have to have a big idea for a project to be able to talk about yourself. Um, and, you know, to find, to find the right people. I think, like, I was so lucky to um, have the, the college alum community that I had, but I also, you know, I had to reach out and go to my local domestic violence center, which is, you know, I know is a really intimidating prospect for a lot of people, especially if they're not being physically abused. But most of the women in my group were not physically abused. It was sort of emotional, mental, financial abuse kind of stuff. And, but one of the biggest gifts I've given myself is being able to be vulnerable with that group of women. And it was their, uh, sort of support that helped me to have the confidence in myself that I needed to to do this project. So I think we all like, yeah, we all can sort of. I mean, that's
0: mothering, right? Like we can all sort of yeah, mother. Each start other. to breathe again, and again. Here we are describing ourselves as mothers, which is fantastic. But yeah. I am more than a mom as well,
1: right? One of the other beautiful things about this project that I didn't anticipate but I'm really grateful for is it has really integrated my identity as a mother with my identity as an artist and also as a community member. I I offer private uh, writing mentorship and coaching online. And a lot of my clients are mothers of young children who really feel their creative identity sort of divorced from their motherhood. And one of the things I work on with them is sort of figuring out how to be a mom and a writer at the same time. And so I feel so lucky that like this project has integrated those things for me. And when I think about my motherhood and my creativity, they don't seem at odds with each other at all. I'm really grateful for that.
0: The best way to find out more about Betsy Cornwell is her website, BetsyCornwell.com, as well as OldKnittingFactory.com. Betsy Cornwell, I am so glad that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you for joining me.
1: Me too. Thank you so much, Jackie. It was really kind of you to reach out and I've really enjoyed speaking with you. So thank you very much. And if you're ever in Ireland, I'd love to have you over at the Knitting Factory.
0: I was just going to say, I might be knocking on your door. I'll I'll let you know in advance.
1: (laughs) No, but sincerely, I would love to have you. So please, please let me know.
0: Oh, that would be such a treat. Thank you so much, Betsy Cornwell. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Should Have Listened to My Mother.